Welcome to Let the Boys Kiss, the creation of queer ships, where we ask the question, is it queer baiting, queer coding, or queer canon? This week, we'll be discussing 80s buddy action movies. I'm Maddie. And I'm Kelsey. And I'm Todd. Wait, what? Who the hell is Todd? at the end of our last one but if anybody didn't hear we have a stranger among us but only to you he is a friend of mine kelsey met him not that long ago but he's a a listener of the pod and he came to me with an idea for this episode and i thought it was a delightful idea and uh, we didn't want to just steal it from him so here he is joining the combo happy to be here todd i'm happy to be here thanks for having me i want to specify i consider you both friends thank you oh Yeah, no, I'm I'm excited. This is my first podcast experience, I guess I'll say, but I am going to watch what I say because I do plan on hosting Jeopardy at some point in my career. Mm-hmm. So, so if you could say really offensive stuff during this, that would probably help you get hired. Just hot takes because I think the pendulum is going to swing back and that it's going to be like, he's not offensive enough to host this game show. Yeah. So I'm just preparing for that. I think that is our future. So 80s buddy action movies is what we are calling this episode. We're broadly considering any movie, two-hander ensemble with two guys who have, you know, chemistry in some sort of macho action movie from the 80s era. Yeah, it's going to be another one of our sort of grab bag episodes that we've done before. And we're also throwing in a movie from 74 and 95 just to see if there's any shifts that happen. It's important to, for people to have context. So yeah, we, we watched a long list of films for this one. I don't know that we need to run through them all right now, but we all watched all of them. So Todd, kick us off because this was all your baby, this episode. Sure. Yeah, like you said, we're doing one from the 70s. It's just kind of like, where did it start? I wanted to throw in what from there. And then we threw in one in the 90s that I think goes with the motif that we're talking about. And then also that one specifically goes into another topic that we're going to discuss, uh, which is the aspect of race within these buddies. I chose this topic because I had looked at some of the other ships that had been discussed on this podcast and i thought that they've been pretty recent i think that this is a good way to go back a little bit and i think it's just glaring and it needs to be discussed and so while researching this topic i read a chapter for a book buddy films and gender identity representing the bonds of masculinity by jody mason so basically in the, the 60s and 70s there was civil unrest Oh, I've heard of it. Yes. With second wave feminism and the civil rights movement, white middle-class men felt disenfranchised. I'm not sure if that sounds familiar. When don't they? So in response to everything that was happening there in the 80s, post-Vietnam, you have the Reagan globalism and like glorification of capitalism that gives you Gordon Gecko, but it also gives you like the cartoonish idea of masculinity that is Arnold Schwarzenegger and Sylvester Stallone. So, and it's like kind of happening now where white middle-class men also feel disenfranchised. And that's why Kumail has to do all those sit-ups. Oh my God, poor Kumail suffers for everyone. It comes in waves and we're kind of reliving this a little bit. And that's why you'll see Trump's face over Sarge Sloan's body because it goes (laughs) full circle. So just some trends mentioned in this chapter. In the 70s, there was a focus on the mentor buddy movie, like Thunderfoot Mm. and Lightning. Lightfoot, excuse me. Uh, Thunderbolt and Lightfoot. I'm. I promise you, we're going to say that every which way that is not correct through the course of this episode. That movie, which we will discuss later, 
And then what one of the big things is the idea of masculinity in the 60s and early 70s was in reaction to the masculinity of the Westerns in the 50s. And so then you had more slim framed action stars. And then one of the other things that was interesting that uh, they vocalized in this chapter was that they were on the same team and that it was them versus society. Like, let's just say Bush Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, they, mm-hmm. you know, they bickered. But, but lovingly. But lovingly. And by the time you get to the 80s, like I said, the, the civil rights movement and uh, the second wave feminism, there's like a reaction to that. In the 80s, you have man versus man. And so they're always, and when we go through the movies that we were watching, like, oh, you're different because of race or class or whatever. And therefore it is us against each other. And then by the end of the movie, they maybe get along, but it absolutely is a reflection of the time, which I thought was super interesting. And then, so there was creating a divide and then they were vocalizing homophobia in these movies of like, oh, well, we got to quit meeting like this. And so one of the quotes here from the book was the films reinforced the incompatibility of the masculine ideal of the 1980s on homosocial intimacy through the use of paranoid references, which only highlights the homoerotic tension. They do bring your attention to it a lot in all of these yeah, movies. They are addressing the homoerotic elephant in the room. Anyway, so then just I'll quickly wrap up here, but there's a lot of phallic symbolism, like the guns, the trucks, the planes, everything is just an extension of a penis. And then also something that I thought that was interesting, along with the Reaganism, is the emphasis on the nuclear family. Like in the 60s and 70s, going back to Bushcast City and the Sundance Kid, one of the best bromance movies of all time, you know, they resented staying at home and the traditional family values or whatever. They wanted the chase. They wanted to keep going. And they even bring the woman with them because they're not going to stay home with her. And then she leaves and they stay together. (laughs) They sure do. They make their choices known. I, I think this is me signing up for the Bush Cassidy and Sundance whole episode just on that. Hey, I would do it. I love it. But then in, the, in these 80s movies, it's always they're trying to get back to my wife or you killed my wife or like, you know, I just got to get back to my wife and kids and that's all that matters. But then instead of being with their wife and kids. They're only with their male friends constantly. Yeah. So basically to to sum it up, there's just overt cartoonish masculinity that's being displayed here. It's a lot of shirtless dudes with cutoffs and they're just sweaty and they're like shaking because they have a, a penis also known as a machine gun in their hand and they're just making <laughs> them shake their muscles. In slow motion. In slow motion. And it's like, yeah. my favorite part is that there's the hyper-masculinity of it and that they're perpetuating traditional values of masculinity and family and patriotism and nationalism. But what I love about it is that it's so gay. Like, Mm -hmm. the fans of these movies are these homophobic traditionalists, and they're watching naked, sweaty men arm wrestle. But it's it's great because it leaves a space for the little closeted gay boys of the 80s to go to these (laughs) movies that are culturally acceptable for them to watch and ogle shirtless Arnold Schwarzenegger walking in slow motion and 10-second shots of just his biceps. And I don't know if this is the time to bring this up, but I think, right, there's something particularly homoerotic about how large these men are. Like, yes, this is a thought that I have all the time about, like, I don't know that that's what women are really into. Something about how large these men are, I think of as being particularly attractive to men or something that men are particularly invested in, in a way that's not necessarily for the straight women in the audience. Yes. I mean, this will come up through all of the movies, but I got this strong sense in a lot of them of just like, who is this for? Because these movies could not be more targeted at a specific 
male heterosexual audience, right? Like in terms of marketing and who is expected to watch all of these things. But so much of it is just glorification of these, I guess, idealized male forms, but who is the one idealizing them, right? And just the lingering sensual shots of their bodies. So much of the movies is that. And you're just like, is this like in case somebody's wife walks in the room and then she gets to be entertained for a second when he's what? Like, but I don't think this is for her. Let me put this to rest. I promise you, the makers of the majority of the movies that we're about to discuss did not for one second think about the wife walking in and watching it. I know, I'm with you on that. My question is, where does it come from? Why is it like, you know what all my straight bro friends want to see? <laughs> I'll tell you right now, it's wish fulfillment. Obviously, it, there's a spectrum here of like, sometimes it is the glorification of it or whatever. But speaking as a straight man, I don't necessarily want Arnold or, or you know, Sliced yeah. alone. It's just the, the men want to be him is the is the Yeah, yeah men want to be him and women want to be with him. Like Except women don't want to be with him is our point. <laughs> you are telling me that that's actively unattractive yeah. or that's not ideal in a hypothetical like part? You're, you're throwing a lot of shade sure, on... Sure, sure. No, but I mean, I think for a lot of people, it is on the more unattractive side of the scale. I don't think that they're like, that's the ideal male form, but I would settle for less. I think they're like, it's a, it's a lot. Like, who's that for? Like, that's why I chose it. Because you're right. I think that it's too extreme. But it reminds me of... Now my, my redneck is about to show, y'all. It's a, a joke. From the, the 2003 stand-up special Blue Collar Comedy Tour, this was like a strangely woke joke for a 2003 blue collar comedy tour. But basically Ron White is saying that like, he's like homophobes, like what a, what a pointless position to have, like who cares. And then in the joke, he's talking to a friend of his and he's, he's basically telling his friend, he's like, Hey, we're all gay. It just is like, to what degree you're gay. And the guy's like, yeah, that's bullshit. I ain't gay at all. And he's like, yeah, you are. I can prove it. And then he goes, fine, prove it. And he goes, well, do you like porn? And he goes, yeah, I love porn. You know, uh, and he goes, well, do you just watch scenes with two women? He's like, no, I like watching a dude and a chick, you know, have sex. And he was like, well, do you like it when the guy has a flabby, half-flaccid penis? And he goes, no, I love hard-throbbing cock. And he's like, oh, <laughs> interesting. Did, yeah. did you know that about yourself before you just said it out loud? So it's like that that idea of just like, I'm not gay at all, but I love to watch these sweaty dudes shaking muscles when they're with the machine guns. It's hilarious to yep. me. That is why I chose it. Let's dig into the movies. Wonderful. So let's take it back to the 70s. Yes. First one, and I will say correctly this time, is Thunderbolt and Lightfoot. It's in 1974. While stealing a car, free-spirited drifter Lightfoot, played by Jeff Bridges, crosses paths with legendary thief Thunderbolt, played by Clint Eastwood, in the midst of his own escape. Thunderbolt's old partners in crime, Red and Eddie, believe he double-crossed them after they robbed a Montana bank vault several years ago. After Thunderbolt successfully pleads his innocence and is let off the hook, Lightfoot rallies them together as a group to rob the very same bank again. So this definitely feels very 70s. It was a very young Jeff Bridges. And Clint Eastwood is playing the old man? Clint Eastwood has been playing the old man since 1974. <laughs> Clint Eastwood is a thousand years old. So I had you guys watch this. What did you think generally? And I guess, what did you think of the obvious ship, which is Eastwood and Bridges or Thunderbolt and Lightfoot, he said correctly one more time. Very nice. Nicely done, sir. Kelsey, you want to take it off? Sure. I like this movie. You know, it's a heist. You can't go wrong with that. Jeff Bridges is great. He got nominated for an Oscar for this role, yes. which is 
Very interesting. But yeah, this was definitely an interesting watch and an interesting one to start off with. Lightfoot takes a liking to, to Thunderbolts right away. I was <laughs> sure saying to Maddie before we record the podcast over and over in my head since I watched it. I just can't get the scene out of my mind where like they're together and then Thunderbolts is going to leave and Lightfoot yells at him across the street. I want your friendship. And I'm like, (laughs) it is a a direct quote. No, I I absolutely. Maddie, your thoughts. I liked it a lot less than you. I think I I did find it to be fascinating and speak to this conversation in a lot of interesting ways. And I will say I liked it more having read this fascinating review (laughs) that you found a contemporaneous review from 1974 about how the movie hates heterosexuality yeah it's a peter biskind review from a journal called jump cut and the title of this article is sexual politics in thunderbolt and lightfoot tight ass and cocksucker (laughs) which i mean that title would have worked too fascinating fascinating you know meta yeah it would have been called that at the time but it very much is that like every heterosexual couple in this movie is humiliated by the film and like any guy with an attraction to women is totally made fun of for that and like reading it in light of that did make it really interesting to me but at the time like watching it it's tough because you know it's so misogynistic there's a lot of it that's painful to watch in a like 70s kind of way I saw that Catherine Bach was in this movie, and she is, of course, known as her role as Daisy Duke in The Dukes Mm -hmm. of Hazzard. And then I was like, oh, great, it'll be like a, I guess it'll be like a 300, like The Dukes of Hazzard. But no, she was in it for one scene, and she was very much thrown away. Who was she? She's one of the women that they sleep with at the beginning. Oh, she's one of the prostitutes. Remember how you forgot about any women being in it at all? The scene that didn't need to exist where they got hookers? (laughs) I knew there were the two prostitutes. Because I think it is relevant as well that Thunderbolt has sex, but he doesn't seem to be He's enjoying it at all. having a good time. <laughs> he gets bullied into it by Lightfoot, and then he's like, oh, I guess I have to sleep with this woman right now. Did you enjoy Jeff Bridges' performance, Maddie? Jeff Bridges is delightful. Here's okay. what I'll say. Jeff Bridges, so charming. He's giving it his all. He is trying so hard to connect with Clint Eastwood. And I will say this, you cannot connect with Clint Eastwood. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, Jeff Bridges is there just like flirting up a storm and Clint Eastwood is just like, okay. There's two things that happen in this movie uh, that happen in a lot of these, which is one direct reference to like, oh, people might think we're gay or whatever. It's like, oh, we got to stop meeting like this or whatever. Mm -hmm. And then the second thing is for way longer than I had anticipated, Jeff Bridges is in full drag. And he looks good, man. He does. He looks good. Great legs. I liked his wig. Good wig. And it's not just that he's in drag, but he and Clint Eastwood act as a couple from like a lot of the length of the scene where he's in drag. They're undercover as a straight couple post heist. And let's not forget that, you know, there's a history of cross-dressing in comedy, like for comedic effect, right? Like your your Milton Burles, right? People could get arrested for cross-dressing in public and then go turn on one of the three channels that is on their TV and watch Milton Burle in a dress. And yeah. this is in 1974. We're not that far removed from that, right? It is a fascinating era from which this film emerges. I think there's something else interesting too happening. So there are these two other characters that they hook up with later in the movie, Red and Eddie is... is- you mentioned Todd in the intro and 
the red character keeps being like, but he's my friend. I'm friends with him. Oh, he has yeah. his experience in the war. It randomly turned halfway through into a, a four-hander. Yeah, and yeah. I think like there's definitely a reading of this movie where Red and Thunderbolt had an intimate relationship, and now like that's the level of jealousy he's experiencing for Lightfoot. And that also is a great point because that is a motif that happens all the time. And this is not one of the movies that is, that we're going to discuss today, but like even Rambo, right? Mm-hmm. The whole point of it was that he was going back to like connect with his war buddies and not to dismiss every war friendship as <laughs> homoerotic. And by the way, we'll get to it in Commando. Well, Thunderbolt and Lightfoot. So that's our, that's the 70s. That's where we're starting. That's what we are going to contrast potentially the, the 80s films with. All right. AO3, you guys want to go into that? Yeah, so we're going to talk about AO3 with each of these examples. Not a ton of fic throughout this whole episode, just saying that up front. I don't think people will be surprised. No, this one has three total fics. They are all slash. One of them is in Japanese. Hell yeah. But yeah, we'll come back to the AO3 stuff at the end, but we're just giving you the stats as we go. Yeah. Okay, next movie. Now we're in the 80s. It is 48 hours. And so annoyingly, it is not spelled out 48 hours. So when you Google this movie, you have to put 48 space HRS. And that is my biggest critique of the movie. Wow. That is your biggest critique of the movie. Otherwise, perfection. (laughs) Otherwise, no notes. 10 out of 10. Which, if you haven't seen this movie, you'll laugh about that later. Here's the quick logline. It's renegade cop Jack Cates, played by Nick Nolte, pulls bank robber Reggie Hammond, played by Eddie Murphy, in his first feature debut, from a federal prison on a 48-hour leave to help him capture Hammond's old partner. Uh, Having escaped from prison work crew, his old partner is on a killing spree around San Francisco on the trail of half a million dollars that went missing after one of his robberies. The cocky Reggie, Eddie, knows where the money is, but spars with the hot-headed Jack, Nolte, as he enjoys his temporary freedom. So I'll very quickly say, I enjoyed this movie a lot, and I don't think that you guys did. And I think that that is something that we can discuss. So why don't I throw it to you? So 48 Hours, I should say, a lot of people consider this sort of the OG buddy cop movie. So we knew that going into watching it, and we had expectations (laughs) that it would follow the sort of the formula of a buddy cop movie that you anticipate you know these guys meet each other they butt heads they have opposite personalities then they have to work together and over the course of the movie they learn to appreciate each other they become friends they solve whatever the case is and everyone's happy in the end none of that happens in this movie (laughs) if that's what you're expecting you expected wrong my main reaction to it is it was unpleasant is the word i would use I, i had a hard time having fun which i feel like is what i want from this genre of film. Nick Nolte is the most Nick Nolte Nick Nolte ever. He like just mumbles his way through the whole movie. Eddie Murphy, charming as all hell. This is Eddie Murphy's first film role. People knew him from SNL, but this movie, it's like, whatever else you say about it, it's evident that he's a star watching this movie. So oh yes, there's a scene in it in particular that is my favorite part of the movie that he mm-hmm. steals and is great. But other than that, my issue is... They're not buddies. <laughs> they they don't start buddies. They don't become buddies. They're never going to be buddies. Nick Nolte's super racist. He's the white guy cop. Eddie Murphy, you might know, is black. So, so Eddie Murphy is this criminal. He gets him out of prison to help him out. He spends the first, what, three quarters of the movie 
literally calling him the n-word and saying a bunch of racist stuff to him there's like this weird power dynamic because they're not buddy cops one of them is a criminal who can be sent back to prison at any time by this guy who's just constantly calling him abusive racist names and then add into the mix they're both super misogynistic and homophobic and so there's just like a lot of unpleasantry throughout the course of the thing and then you're like how are they going to become buddies after all this but kelsey what are your thoughts Yeah, I mean, I felt similarly. It's interesting talking about this movie afterwards because, like, I almost have more of a problem with the way women are portrayed in this movie than in Thunderbolt and Lightfoot where it's misogynistic and they're dismissed and they're mistreated. But the women Mm -hmm. are written in this movie in a way that doesn't make any sense. So Nick Nolte has a girlfriend who's inexplicable. There's a woman that Eddie Murphy sleeps with who is inexplicable. Oh, my God, that is insane. (laughs) No woman would act like, what are we doing? I also think, right, structurally, like, we had this experience watching the movie, like, there are multiple points in the film where you would expect their relationship to turn. Yeah. And it doesn't happen when you would expect. And then seemingly randomly later in the movie, they're like, now we're friends. And you're like, you're not. No. no. Like, if you're people, you're not. No. Okay, here's, here's what I'm going to say. I, the, the joke earlier about how my biggest note about the movie being the title is was a joke. It's 1982. Like, it wouldn't be excusable, but it would be more understandable if we were talking about the movie of 1974 at this point. Right? Uh-huh. Like, it, throwing a heart in, it is not okay. It is not okay. It's the biggest flaw of the movie. It is absolutely, like, I'm not going to defend that at all. What I will say about what you're saying about how they're not becoming friends. I think this, and this is coming from the male perspective, obviously, but also someone that has an older brother. Mm-hmm. There is something about that, one could argue, toxic masculine uh, dynamic. I think you could definitely argue that, yeah. <laughs> one might. One kind of half is right now. But there's that thing that happens. I will just give a brief personal example. Like, I remember my brother and I, I was probably 19 or 20 and my brother's six years older than me, and we had never fought physically as adults. It was always, you know, roughhousing his kids or whatever, but there's just one time, and I think he was back home from college or something, and he was just in a real bad mood or whatever, and then we, like, were just at each other's throats, and then we just fist fought for, like, 10 minutes, and one of my friends was there, and he was just like, what the what the hell's happening? And then he was like, guys, guys, like, are we joking or we're not joking? And it was just like, we're throwing, like, we're like, don't it, like, break, we broke the couch. He broke the couch. Oh, Jesus over. Christ. Was blood spilled? Blood, well, he had, gla- he took his glasses off. Thank you. Um, but, like, I think he hit me as a half joke, and then it was harder than, you know, like, and then it was like, well, screw yeah. you. So then I, I hit him across the face. I'm working the body. He's got me in a headlock. It went on for like 10 minutes, right? Wow. And then afterwards, he, he just goes, okay. And he like helped, like, you know, pulled me up. And then we literally just both opened a beer. And then we, like, it was good. It was just like, yeah. whatever tension there was or whatever, it was like, we fought it out. And I, I tell that very personal story very quickly to say that there was something about, and, and maybe it might, there's maybe different undertones, especially racially mm-hmm. and maybe sexually in terms of this dynamic that we're talking about in this movie. But there is something to be said about sometimes it is cathartic and you know meaningful to have it out with them and then be vulnerable in that way physically with them and then afterwards you're closer so there's not that big heart to heart it's fist to fist and sometimes that means 
something. You're partially making my point for me, Todd, because there is a scene in this movie where they physically fight. And it is one of the moments when Kelsey and I both were like, maybe this is what will make them friends now. Like, we buy that, right? I'm not saying that two men in a movie can't be at each other's throats and then find some sort of catharsis through fighting. We've seen that a lot. I get that formula. That's not what's happening here. The first scene when you expect them to become friends is the one that we mentioned as being the best scene of the movie. They make this bet that he can get information out of people in this Confederate bar full of racist rednecks. And again, I'll remind you, he's black. So that plays into it. So he goes into the bar. He takes Nick Nolte's badge, pretends to be a cop, and he steals the scene. He goes around. He has all this great banter with everyone in the room. Nobody can take their eyes off of him. He's humiliating this room of rednecks. And you're watching it like, yeah, Eddie Murphy, do it, Eddie Murphy. And you think Nick Nolte is also watching him like, oh, I'm gaining a newfound respect for this Eddie Murphy character who I didn't know anything about. But no, he's not yeah. gaining a newfound it's respect. A for him. It's a flaw. It's a And then they do have that fight scene, and we're right. like, okay, so this is the moment that it's going to turn. They're going to now be like, well, we we fought it out, and we're friends. But that doesn't seem when their relationship turns either. As best we could tell, it's when Nick Nolte loses track of Eddie Murphy, and then Eddie Murphy calls him from the bar, and we're like, this is the moment. Of all these well, yeah, things. he calls him from the bar, and then because of this, I guess he's decided he can trust him, and they have a scene where Nick Nolte's like, sorry I said all the, like, the N-word to you. I was just keeping you in your place. <laughs> and Eddie Murphy's reaction is like, it's all good, but bro, we're friends now. I Okay, I'm not excusing the racism, but the antagonistic <laughs> aspect of the dynamic is what I will defend. I just think it's a simple shift of them having that conversation directly after the fight. Like that makes the movie substantially better. Right. I fully agree. I agree with that. Uh, AO3, there's nothing there. There's nothing on AO3 for 48 hours. On to the next. Okay. So Rocky Three, one of the greatest 80s bromances, which is Rocky Balboa and Apollo Creed. So Mm -hmm. the long run is... Having become the world heavyweight champion, former working class boxer Rocky Balboa is rich and famous beyond his wildest dreams, which has made him lazy and overconfident. In a double whammy, he loses his trainer and father figure, Mickey, and then has his title stolen by the arrogant, menacing challenger, Clover, played by Mr. T. Turning to his former adversary, Apollo Creed, played by Carl Weathers, for help, Rocky struggles to get his old fire back. Now, I'll ask you... This question, which is, overall, have you seen and or are you a fan of the Rocky series? And then additionally, very quickly, what did you think about this one? I think it's my turn to go first. I have seen Rocky 1. I like Rocky 1 a lot. I'm curious what happened in Rocky 2 to get us to Rocky 3, because he is a different character in this movie. But it's, it's fine. It's like, it's a sports movie. It's kind of what you think it's going to be. It it feels like it does have a little bit of stunt casting, right? Like Mr. T is in it. Hulk Hogan is in it. introducing Mr. T. So oh. this was a big role for him is what it said in the credits. Is this like before the A-Team? This movie came out in 1982. The A-Team came out in 1983. So it really oh. was introducing Mr. T, man. My goodness. Well, that's very exciting. It is. Yeah, I'll echo what you said. I mean, I thought it was a fine time. If you know that you're watching a boxing movie you get exactly what you expect. But it was kind of weird that the two of us had just watched and discussed at length Rocky 1 before we watched this because you wouldn't know they were the same series (laughs) other than the fact that the character has the same name. They have to escalate it, but it eventually becomes a character of itself. And then Rocky Four is very much in Rocky Three, where it's just like ridiculous and fantastic. Rocky Five is absolutely unwatchable. Then you get back down to 
the more grounded is what I'm looking for mm -hmm. in Rocky Balboa. And then with the creed of it all, you get into the perfect combination. And then also you're continuing this bromance through, spoiler alert, Apollo Creed's son, played by Michael B. Jordan. But anyway, so we'll get into it very quickly. So in the first one, Rocky Balboa fights Apollo Creed. Uh, he doesn't win, but he goes the distance. Mm -hmm. And then in the second one, they fight again. It's a rematch. And then he beats Apollo Creed. And then in the third one, which is one we're discussing now, he's the champion. And now he has to like figure out what his career is now that he's on top. And then he has to go back to the person, former adversary, as the logline said. Mm -hmm. And then, like I said, sometimes it's cathartic to beat the shit out of your best friend. The reason I chose this movie to go in there is because how strong the bromance is. And the peaks here, mm -hmm. uh, especially, let's just, I mean, the visuals are just still flowing through my head right now of the beach scene with the, yeah, yes. the crop tops. Uh, the short shorts, the hugging, the wife watching. The frolicking. The frolicking in the surf. Perfect word. Perfect word. Good time. It's great. I mean, a third of this movie is one long training montage, and I love a training montage. I mean, the frolicking on the surf is great. Some of my favorite gay moments of the montage, though, are when he's teaching him footwork, and they're doing this side-by-side -side dance sort of thing, and Creed is right up behind Rocky, and they're just, like, kind of dancing together <laughs> several times. <laughs> that was one of my favorite parts but yeah i mean it's homoerotic it's all get out you know now what you guys think about the race aspect of it because holly is racist yes yeah yes. they go to a, a, a boxing gym where apollo creed originally trained and it's like everyone who trains there is black and Polly coming from is 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 Philadelphia like real white? I don't I don't know. I, I don't know much about Philadelphia, but if it's anything like Chicago, sometimes it can be very segregated. So I would argue that he's probably from a very white and or very Italian side of Philly and that he probably doesn't come in contact too much with the black side of town. Yeah, I mean, the racial element of this is mostly glossed over. I would say in terms of the Rocky Apollo relationship, like, does it even come up? It doesn't come up, but I think that there's an interesting aspect, and Kelsey, off camera, you had kind of brought up this dynamic before, which is a white man turning to a black man to save him. If you take a step back, the optics of it, just like, now that I've defeated you, I need your help to help me defeat this other black man, Mr. T. Well, th that's a part of it to me that stood out. I, I'll, to finish that thought, I would say yes, but also it's Creed who comes to him and decides to train him up. Rocky is not even in the mood to do this fight, so that complicates it a little bit. But I think if we're looking at optics, there's a montage where he's fighting a bunch of different people and the first several people that he's fighting are black. And I started to be like, is this, <laughs> is this going to change at some point? That was the part where optically I found it noticeable. Is that, is that a reflection of the state of boxing at the time though, potentially? No, I think it 100% is a reflection of the time. I just found it to be an interesting visual for the montage. Yeah. Moving on, AO3, there are a few more for this, but it's over the course of the series. There are 46 Rocky on AO3. Five of them are Rocky slash Apollo. But you have also listed here, Kelsey, some more slash. Yeah, so of equal popularity, I guess, or greater popularity, there are six Adonis Victor slash ships, which I think is from Creed, which you know, fits with their recency bias. And there are an equal number of Rocky Ivan slash fix as Rocky Apollo. Fascinating. Moving along to 1984 with Beverly Hills Cop. Give us the rundown, Todd. Absolutely. From 1984, Beverly Hills Cop, after his 
childhood buddy is murdered while visiting Detroit. Rebellious cop Axel Foley, played by Eddie Murphy, follows the leads to Beverly Hills, California, under the auspices of a vacation. He checks in with his old friend Jenny Summers and starts to believe her boss might somehow be involved in the murder. However, a lieutenant of the Beverly Hills Cop Police Department does not trust Foley and hinders his search for evidence. So there's a big theory that the character of Axel Foley, played by Eddie Murphy, is gay. And that his childhood buddy, that is the inciting incident at the beginning of this movie, was his lover. And then there's other, there's pieces of evidence throughout the movie to support that theory, which is that there's no love interest for him, which is odd in this era and this genre. It's not just that there's no love interest. It's that there's a female main character who is not a love interest. He has a female platonic friend. Although I think it's, you could potentially think that there's something else happening in that dynamic as well, which he goes to Beverly Hills and he's only around white people and we can't show a black man in a relationship with a That's white certainly man possible too. in a movie yeah. in the 80s. But also to, to that point, they totally could have made her black, right? Sure. Yeah, you're absolutely right. There's, there's different ways to look at it. But also one of the other yeah. things I'll just very quickly point out is that one of the people that he does connect with is the gay... He works at the art museum the or the art, art gallery, museum yeah. as well. Art gallery. He's broing out with the gay guy. That he's avenging his buddy's death. Well, his, it's not just his buddy. His buddy tells him he loves him in so many words before he gets murdered at the beginning of the movie. So it's like right. less subtext than I expected it to be going into it. I buy the theory is my reaction to this movie. Yeah. I, I think it tracks that he's avenging his friend who has confessed his love for him and that he's all sad about it. And that's why he doesn't want to sleep with his lady friend through the course of the movie. Him being gay, it doesn't affect the plot. It doesn't affect anything. It's just like probably the case in terms of the the producers of this movie thinking about that, but it's just like, probably. And I think we would be remiss if we didn't say, given our earlier conversation, one of the better female characters we're going to get in this run 100%. of movies is his friend. And that's what I'm saying. If a female character in one of these movies is not a love interest, she's a thousand times more likely to seem like an actual human character. Well, if they have emotions and thoughts and, you know, motivation and opinions, then the audience won't want to sleep with her. So I don't, I, yeah, mm-hmm. I don't know what you're talking about. Exactly. It yeah, all makes yeah. sense. On AO3. Two total fix for Beverly Hills Cop. I assume the entirety of the series. Uh, And yes, one of them, Kelsey. One is about Judge Reinhold's character. Uh And one is about Zach, who is Victor Maitland's right-hand man. And it was like, why is this a thing? Why is this happening? But it turns out he's played by Jonathan Banks. And the person who wrote the fic just loves Jonathan Banks. So (laughs) that explains that. So yeah, not a ton going on there. Again, not a surprise. Taking it into 1985, we've got Commando and the first of our Schwarzenegger movies. And if if anyone is the star of this genre of film, it is Schwarzenegger. So tell us about that. So it's a retired Special Forces soldier, John Matrix, played by Arnold Schwarzenegger, lives with daughter Jenny in isolation. But his privacy is disturbed by former commander Franklin Kirby, who warns him that his fellow soldiers are getting killed one by one. After Kirby leaves, Ginny is kidnapped by former Latin American dictator Arius, who wants uh, Matrix to restore him to power. Instead, Matrix sets out to take down the rogue leader and rescue his daughter. This is just textbook. What you think of when you think of like 80s cheesy action movies? Chef's guess this is it. And also, it is so goddamn gay. So I guess the ship we can discuss is between Arnold and then Bennett, played by Vernon Wells, who is one of the villains, who said his costume was 
based off of Freddie Mercury, and I don't want to need to break news here, but he was a gay man and arguably flamboyantly dressed one. Very so least a queer man. I don't know that we have a full answer on well, his exact sexuality. That's fair. <laughs> yes, I thank you for the specification. A queer man. So anyway, he's wearing like mesh shirts and stuff in this movie. And just like the movie starts with just like, a, the che- it's all cheesy. It's, like, it's fucking great. And... <laughs> We can discuss the merit that you guys will grant this, but to go to like the, the homoeroticism or whatever, we see him first and he's either shirtless or in a tank top, I can't remember, but then he carries this giant log and it's just like uh, looping in Sigmund Freud. What does that log mean, Arnold? Uh, because it's long, and I mean like long stretches of camera just on his bicep. <laughs> I'm obsessed with the editor of this film. Yes, 100%. Great note. But here's what I'll say is that what I love about this movie is that it doesn't try to be nuanced. It doesn't try to say anything besides maybe maybe we can get into that. But it's, you know what it is? It's cotton candy. It's, It's sweet and it has zero nutritional value and it's gone like that. It is fantastic. It's a, it's straight to the point. It is oddly, like you talked about, probably not a great female character, but it's a hell of a lot better than some of the ones we have discussed and will discuss. And with the race issue there as well, it is cotton candy and it is ridiculous. And it doesn't take itself seriously, but it also doesn't make fun of itself. It's just straightforward cotton candy. Ladies, it is exactly what it is. Kelsey, yeah. you kick it off. I, I, this was, I mean, again, the editor should get a lifetime achievement award. Some of the quick cuts in this are yeah. extraordinary. Really interesting to watch because you're going through and it is a buddy movie, but his buddy is this woman that he's with the whole time. And so you're watching, yeah. you're like, so is she going to be a love interest for him? Because I think 99% of the time that would be the case. But as you're watching it, you're like, no, the villain Bennett is obsessed and in love and felt rejected by him. And he got kicked out of their unit. Arnold kicked yeah. Bennett out of their unit and Bennett didn't take it well. No. And again, watching it and being like, so why aren't they trying to do something with Arnold and the person helping him is again, like we have a white man and a black woman and we're not showing that in a movie for 1985. Mm-hmm. But then very strangely at the end of the movie, there's a little indication that maybe they're going to end up together. And it's like- At the end, they rescue the daughter and the daughter comes and hugs this woman she's literally never seen before. And it's like, they're a family. How did that happen when there was no romantic tension? Very strange. I have something for you guys, which is- Direct quotes from this movie to set up the scene. Bennett, the villain, has the daughter at gunpoint, and then Arnold has a knife. He does not have a gun. But here is uh, the line Arnold says, Come on, let the girl go. Just between you and me, don't you deprive yourself of some pleasure. Come on, Bennett, let's party. To which Bennett replies, I can beat you. I don't need the girl. Then, cut to very quickly after. They tussle and whatever. Then he has a gun on Schwarzenegger and he says, John, I'm not going to shoot you between the eyes. I'm going to shoot you between the balls. Then Arnold takes some pipe and throws it through his body and then steam goes through his torso and Arnold says, why don't you let off some steam? Woof. I just, I need a cold shower after just that line reading. Yeah. Death by penetration. Yeah. It's, it's gay. It's it's like exactly what you expect. It's the entire conversation we're having at the beginning of this, where it's like, who who's this for, gentlemen? Well, and if you thought that Clint Eastwood was a brick wall, 
Arnold Schwarzenegger is a concrete slab to, to work with. So I don't know how much method acting he was doing, but at least the actor that played Bennett was absolutely playing again. 100%. I buy it. On AO3, there's only one fic, and it is Cindy slash Matrix, who's Schwarzenegger. Yeah, Schwarzenegger and his lady friend. Actual speed rounds now, people. <laughs> Running Scared, 1986, starring Gregory Hines and Billy Crystal. It's Ray and Danny, played by Gregory Hines and Billy Crystal, are two Chicago police detectives hot on the trail of a drug kingpin. They manage to nab the drug ward, but the bus is messy and the two are suspended. While vacationing in Key West, Florida, they decide to retire from the police force and open up a bar together. But when they return to Chicago and find out that Gonzalez has been released on bail, they vow not to quit the force until the dangerous dealer is behind bars for good. This is probably one of the less known movies that we're discussing today. And it was kind of funny. I liked it. I hadn't seen it before, but it was on my list of buddy cop movies to watch. And I think that some things didn't age well. I will say that police misconduct is uh, rampant. And that's also kind of a bit of an irony in the traditionalism of the 1980s action movies, which is just like, lawmen are good. And like almost every one of our lawmen here break all the rules. Well, but that's that's how we've gotten where we are. We've created this whole genre of lawman who is good because he has the right morals, but doesn't actually follow any of the law. And that's not uncommon. But yeah, I mean, it's it's Billy Crystal and it's Gregory Hines. Like, they're a fun time. And I, I, they're kind of the buddiest of all the buddies in this list of movies, I think. They're straight up best friends, spend all their time together. They remind me a lot of Starsky and Hutch because mm-hmm. they hit on women together for no reason. They'll find a woman and both hit on her at the same time. And you're like, what's going on here? Looking for threesomes. They go to South Beach together. They're rollerblading around. That's the gayest part is when they're rollerblading in South Beach together. There's a 20-minute inexplicable scene. It's not inexplicable. It's the whole point of the movie. (laughs) We actually were very disappointed they did not retire to South Beach at the end. That is the greatest flaw of this film. Well, the greatest flaw in the film is that there's not the South Beach running scared, too. Right. 100%. Why are they not retired in Florida? Is it South Beach? I thought they were in Key West or something. Yeah. Oh, West. sorry. You're right. It's, it's Key, West. Key West. But yeah, they, they were going to retire and start a bar and roller skate together for the rest of their days. And they should have done it because choosing to instead be a cop in Chicago sounds like a real fucking bummer. Gregory Hines died in 2003. Otherwise, I would love to see a 2022, I guess, Billy Crystal, Gregory Hines, yeah. like, Old gay couple that used to be cops together in and Chicago Billy owning Crystal a bar and be on board. <laughs> Come on. That would be great. Billy Crystal would crush that. They also are very comfortable just being in each other's lives. Like there's a scene towards the end of the movie where Billy Crystal needs to save his ex-wife and he just walks into Gregory Hines' apartment as he's having sex with a woman and Gregory Hines is like, okay, let's deal with your problem. Yeah. Not there's not even a moment of him being like, Hey, why are you walking in here? He's just like, Oh, Billy's here and he needs my help. Okay. <laughs> it, it's not It's not that there are no boundaries. or I guess, I guess it is that there are no boundaries, right? It's like, just walk in, absolutely. I'm not going to be offended at all. They, they also drive on the L for 15 minutes on a car. It's awesome. Different. I've never seen a chase scene on L tracks. It was cool. I think you're right. It's lesser known, but people should watch it. It's yeah, fun. Totally. I think, I think that's what I like about it. Had it been really popular, I would have nitpicked it more, but I'm like, this is fun. I hadn't heard of it. We didn't even talk about the race aspect of it either. And like I said, Chicago is very segregated. So that is an interesting aspect that they don't lean into where they aren't at ends with each other. It is the day of old of the buddy movies where they are just from beginning to end on each other's side and they're buddies. Nothing on AO3 for this one, unsurprisingly, because I assume 
none of you have heard of it. Someone should write an epic fic of them retiring to Key West. Yes, fix the ending, guys. Well, and I guess the question is, could there be a sequel? Yes, if like Gregory Hines' son is played by somebody. And then now he has to do that, right? Oh, yeah. Now he has to open a bar in Key West. It will also be Michael B. Jordan is going to be the son of Gregory Hines. <laughs> I would love a movie where he has to open a bar with Billy Crystal. Well, no, he doesn't have to open a bar. No, I want that no. to be the plot of it. Gregory Hines' like, condition of Michael B. Jordan's inheritance is that he opened a bar with Billy Crystal in Key West. And then Billy Crystal and Gregory Hines' son, played by Michael B. Jordan, also hit on women collectively. Together. Uh, <laughs> Absolutely. And they roller skate around in half shirts. Yeah, and short shorts. And roller skating is back right now. They're on TikTok together. What a dream. Yes. And we're moving on from one of our least known movies to perhaps our most known movie. And spoiler alert, my favorite movie of this batch. All right. Following the death of his wife, Los Angeles police detective Martin Riggs, played by Mel Gibson, becomes reckless and suicidal. When he is reassigned and partnered with Roger Murtaugh, played by Danny Glover, Riggs immediately clashes with the older officer. As they encounter increasingly dangerous situations, Riggs and Murtaugh begin to form a bond. Riggs's volatile behavior might just help them apprehend the criminals if it doesn't kill them both first. This is like probably like the textbook of Buddy Cop don't get along, get along by the end of it, antagonistic. There's the race, there's the family values, there's the class. It has all the elements. It has all the elements and also fantastic performances by both of them. I mean, just across the board. And I will die on this hill that Mel Gibson should have gotten nominated for an Oscar for this movie. Uh, I wouldn't have been mad about it. He He got cast in Hamlet because of the scene where he puts the gun in his mouth in uh the trailer because that appropriate is scene. powerful that is not that it would happen now but that is like oscar lifetime achievement more montage material is, is some of the scenes where he's uh, really losing it so had you guys seen this movie before and whether you had or not what do you guys think about it overall i had seen it but a long time ago long enough ago that i didn't remember more than a beat or two of it so it was as if I had never seen it. I'm a big fan. I like it a lot. If I was sorely disappointed by 48 Hours Buddy Copness, Lethal Weapon delivered on everything I wanted from a Buddy Cop movie. I think the thing is too, which is unfortunate, is we watched a bunch of these movies together, Maddie and I did, and we watched this one first. I know, when oh. I talk about setting ourselves up for failure. Mel Gibson is fantastic, which is mm-hmm. difficult at this point in history where you're like... Oh. Just because he's a bad person doesn't mean that he's not a good actor. Yeah, But I think in particular for this conversation, I'm obsessed with the ending of this film. Oh, it's incredible. You know what I mean? Are you talking about the... um... Yeah, so let's let's describe it. So the bad guys have kidnapped Danny Glover's daughter. They're trying to get her back. It's this long, long series of action scenes. But they basically end up back at Danny Glover's house confronting the villain. And they basically allow Mel Gibson, who we've established earlier in the film's body is a lethal weapon because he does karate or something, to -to hand-to-hand fight the bad guy. Like, they have guns. They could shoot him. The hydrant is broken, so it's spraying water over them. There's a helicopter going. Yeah, there's the lighting from the helicopter. Mel Gibson is not wearing a shirt, but he's wearing jeans and no shoes. That's true. Danny Glover's like, 
everyone stay back. Let him do this. He needs to do this. There's sirens going, like the red, white, and blue is flashing everywhere. There's dozens of cops, and it's just like, let him do hand-to-hand combat. This is the real justice system. It gets to a point in the fight where it looks like maybe Mel Gibson's not going to be able to win, and so then Danny starts to be like, should I, like, should I call it? You need help? And it's like, no. <laughs> I got this. My masculinity right. will prevail. Yeah. And so Mel Gibson seemingly wins the fight and he comes over to Danny Glover and Danny uh, Glover wraps him in his coat. He, he they're, clutches they're whole, him. They're clutching him to his body. Oh. And then Gary Busey gets up and he has his gun and he's going to shoot him. And they unfurl together. So like Danny Glover still has his arm around Mel Gibson, but they're both holding their arms out and they yes. both shoot Gary Busey simultaneously. Can I tell it's you? Beautiful. Absolutely. It's glorious. The way that you just described that was perfect. Uh, it was a fantastic performance Thank on your you. part, Kelsey. <laughs> But uh, this, to me, it's like you were talking about running scared, how it was fun to watch them. Yeah. But this, uh, to me, it was also fun, but also the most believable, where you did really track it 100%, where it's like, we're talking too old for this shit. I have my nuclear family that I'm worried about. And Riggs is like, I uh, lost my wife, and therefore I am okay dying, but because of the codes of my morals and whatever, I'm going to fight bad guys. And I can't actually kill myself. I have to just get killed in the line of duty. Right, but you track it all the way through, and there's very tender moments, and there's very heartwarming moments, there's funny moments, there's action moments, there's just everything you want in a goddamn movie. Yeah. And then the movie starts with a naked woman jumping off of the top of an And foot. we had a discussion about this when we watched it. Let's hear oh, <laughs> it. Oh, my starts gosh. With, it starts with the woman's breasts, and you're like, wow, a woman's breasts, which, honestly, this is not the only one of these movies that starts with a woman's breast. But then... You immediately see Danny Glover's nipples, too, in the bath scene. And then when you meet Mel Gibson, you see his nipples, too. Everyone is nude at the beginning of this film. It's a fascinating choice. Yes. Hey, guys, go ahead and tweet us what you guys think about this and use the hashtag free the nipple. I'm telling you, they immediately turned it around because we're meeting everyone at their most vulnerable. <laughs> I, I literally said to Maddie when we got to Mel Gibson, like, huh, we've seen six nipples already in this movie. That's great. Yes. Well... I don't know if you guys do this too, but I every time I watch a movie, I have my notes app out and I talk on a nipple scene. Right. No, but, and then, I mean, we could just talk for an hour and a half uh, alone about why the hell they choose to, 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 what family walks in is like, hello, bathing father. We're all in here together. Oh my God, it's so weird. (laughs) That's a weird part. And there's also a weird part of Mel Gibson and Danny Glover's daughter. Well, but they do it in the best possible way. They walk up to a line where you're like, how creepy is this going to get? But it's a way to have a girl fawning over Mel Gibson that is believable and not dumb. And then immediately her whole family makes fun of her for it in front of Mel Gibson. And it just like totally sells the joke. It's perfect. (laughs) Yeah. Let's talk about the race aspect of it, which is interesting because uh, you have the seemingly affluent Black family and then you have the living in a trailer you know widower played by uh, a white man race is not really mentioned and so what do we think about that yeah i it's interesting because you know at this point we've seen a number of the films with a a two-hander where it's a white guy and a black guy Mm -hmm. and i wonder if it's just like normative by the time we get to the late 80s they're like we have a white guy we have a black guy we're hitting both of our audiences we'll bring in you know the white audience the black audience it's present because we have a black character and white character but it's not central to the story they're telling and it's certainly not commented on and i think that i think that's a strength even if there was a comment where it's like are you saying that because i'm black you know what i mean like then they would just kick you out of it but it's just not even 
they have bigger fish to fry than any racial tension, which there is. Uh, yeah, I would say Mel Gibson's suicidal ideation is like the main fish to fry. <laughs> yeah, but that's what I love. I th- to me, that's just it's so dark and it's so character driven. That's why it's such a good it's movie. It's really then, grounded. It's really well acted. Everyone's believable. And that's it's why a, the, the tender moment. It's a good part. movie. It's good. It's really good. Yeah. And I think that it honestly would be one of the most tender ships, right? If they were. Exactly. I mean, that moment at the end when they're together and they shoot Gary Busey. It's, it's beautiful. beautiful. Well, I keep mentioning Starsky and Hutch because it's at the front of my mind at all times like he gets clutched by Danny Glover and I was like this Mm -hmm. is how Starsky and Hutch would treat each other if they had been through this situation all right any AO3 AO3 for this one there are 16 total stories in AO3 but none of them are slash what the hell you're right that this fic would be tender and wonderful and full of hurt comfort moments but nobody's doing it this is our call please write it on to the next still in 1987 the glory days of buddy action movies we have predator visit revisiting our boy arnold schwarzenegger and our boy carl weathers all right here's the long one very quickly dutch played by arnold schwarzenegger a soldier of fortune is hired by the u.s government to secretly rescue a group of politicians trapped in guatemala but when dutch and his team which includes weapons expert blaine jesse ventura and cia agent george carl weathers land in central america something is gravely wrong after finding a string of dead bodies the crew discovers they're being hunted by a brutal creature with superhuman strength and the ability to disappear into its surroundings so this is also 1987 it's also schwarzenegger it's also carl weathers it's also shirtless men in a jungle with big guns there's a lot of just homoeroticism throughout also genre wise it's one of the best examples i think of a war movie an action movie a horror movie and it's sci-fi and sci-fi sorry and sci-fi yeah so it's like it's like four genres mixed into one i think strangely it's one of arnold schwarzenegger's best performances there's kind of just overall, like I said, a lot of broing out between these fellas. The war buddy thing for it, so. The war buddy thing, and then also, it's a meme now, but it's Arnold Schwarzenegger and Carl Weathers, like, muscles, like, arm wrestling, like, like you're busting too many pencils. I did the accent for you guys, okay? <laughs> yeah, the, if you've seen that meme of just the two arms clutching hands, that's from this, in case yeah. you didn't know. But what's funny is, is that that's not... The ship, that could be a potential ship, but the main ship is between the character of Mac, which is played by Bill Duke, and Blaine, which is played by Jesse Ventura. So yeah, Mac and Blaine, their whole deal is, obviously, they're everyone's war buddies. And this is a spoiler, but throughout the film, basically everybody dies. Predator's picking people off one by one. So Blaine is one of the earlier people to get killed by Predator. Mac freaks out. He doesn't handle it well. He is distraught. He's shooting randomly into the jungle to try to kill the predator. And then there's this moment where he's talking to Arnold Schwarzenegger about it. And he says, he was my friend. (laughs) I'm a little upset that you got to say the line because I was waiting to say it. There was a giant, there is, you could drive a giant Arnold Schwarzenegger tank through the pause between he was my friend. (laughs) And let's not... Uh, forget also that the character played by Jesse Ventura at one point describes himself as a sexual Tyrannosaurus. It's great. <laughs> what a choice of words that is. Well, and at the time, he's encouraging all of his male buddies in the helicopter with him to take the chew that makes them into t- sexual Tyrannosaurus. So there's subtext. Yeah, it's real gay. And it's nice. It's one of those tragic, he lost his 
quote unquote friend and he's real sad about it. And that's why more buddy things are always so homoerotic. Here's, your here's my question for you guys. What movie do you like better, Commando or Predator? Predator. Yeah, I think Predator is a much better movie. It doesn't have the editor from Commando. Huge flaw. Every movie should have been. But I think, yeah, I think Arnold is better in this movie also. Um, here's what I'll say. And I think that I like Commando more because I'm not a big sci-fi guy. I'm not a big horror guy. And this obviously leans on that a lot. Like we haven't even discussed Predator in this because I really wanted it just to be an action movie. I will tell you who did appreciate the presence of Predator and it is the fic writers in this fandom. (laughs) It 100% is. Yeah, that's a great transition. There's 48 total fics over the Predator original series franchise, which is from 87 to 90. And all of the romantic or sexual fic is about the Predator itself. Oh my God. Yeah, so that was an interesting find in AO3. Uh, Unsurprising, I think, knowing how the internet works. And yeah, on to the next 1988. We've left 1987 and we're talking about Midnight Run. Another comedy. Another comedy. And this is also, it's a buddy one, obviously. It's also one of the hardest comedies instead of action, but there is a little bit of action in there. When Eddie hires tight-lipped bounty hunter... Jack Walsh, played by Robert De Niro, to locate a mob accountant named The Duke, played by Charles Grodin, and bring him to L.A., Eddie tells Jack that the job will be simple, or a midnight run. But when Jack finds The Duke, the FBI and the mob are anxious to get their hands on him. In a cross-country chase, Jack must evade the authorities, hide from the mob, and prevent The Duke's erratic personality from driving him mad. This is textbook buddy comedy. This one is more, you know, there's they're at odds. I think that there's less homoerotic sexual tension in this one. You say that, but I'll tell you about a fic later that disproves it. Oh my gosh, I love it. I think this is just on the list because it needs to be included. I like them a lot. There's a subtlety to it. It's not super laugh out loud funny, but I think that Robert De Niro is funny. Like, I, I, it's not a surprise to me that he went on to do more comedic roles because there's just something naturally, like his timing's so good and he's just delightful to watch before robert de niro became a caricature of robert de niro this is prime robert de niro it's exactly what you expect from him he sounds like him he acts like him it's exactly what you want and he is taking the character very seriously and he's playing the straight man pretty much that's why it works i think there's an emotional honesty to the movie where they get kind of vulnerable with each other in an interesting way and that's where to me the interesting shippiness is uh, to be found i i thought it was great this is definitely one of my favorites of this bunch we're talking yeah, about. Yeah, it's good. So AO3, not a ton going on. There are five thick, which is maybe more than I would have expected. And That's more than I would have expected. They are all slash. And I teased, but I will be talking more about one of them later. But for now, let's move on to 1989s. We're reaching the end of the decade. Tango and Cash. Here we go. The logline is police officers Ray Tango, played by Spencer Stallone, and Gabe Cash, played by Kurt Russell, are narcotics experts working to bring down a drug lord. In an attempt to stymie their efforts, the drug lord sets up Tango and Cash, making it look as if they've killed an FBI agent. Arrested and put in prison, the two cops formulate an escape plan and once out, team up with Tango's exotic dancer sister, Catherine, played by Terry Hatcher, in order to clear their records and take down the drug lord once and for all. This movie, I think, is not great. I would say it's actively bad. It's a bad movie. They didn't do a good job. (laughs) 
and it's not so bad it's good. No. It's just it, it's almost there. It's almost so bad it's good. Close, I agree. It's almost even more upsetting because it's almost so bad it's good. And if it had just been a little better but still not good, then it would have been more forgivable. But it's like you look at Sylvester Stallone in the glasses. The glasses are a bad choice. I mean, he oh. can do glasses. We've all seen Rocky One. They're great glasses. Stallone cannot play this character. He's he's like this rich investment guy who also right. is a cop and wears <laughs> these ridiculous tailored suits and these glasses that are supposed to make him look like a smart guy who does investments, I guess, is what the glasses are for. It's a terrible character choice. And then Kurt Russell's supposed to be the fly-by-the-seat-of-his-pants guy, which is, you know, believable. I think they were trying to give them opposite characteristics so that they could clash in a way but it doesn't quite line up no absolutely not it's not like stockbroker is opposite of wild card that's not even my biggest critique of the movie my biggest critique is for the second third of this movie it becomes a prison movie and it's like that's not what i want why was this the choice well, and also it doesn't make any fucking sense how they end up in prison in the first place. Like, it's a bad movie. Which is a great transition to the shipping of it all, or at least yeah. the homoeroticism. I'm going to read you, I'm not going to do a Sylvester Stallone accent as much as you guys want Ooh, me to. only. Mm-hmm. But I'll do a line reading now of their interaction where they are discussing what they will do now that they are in prison when the two of them are naked in the showers alone together. The shower scene's wild. At one point, they're discussing, oh, well, you know, whatever is going to happen. I can't believe we got set up. And then Kurt Russell bends over and Sylvester Stallone, the joke being, or whatever, the motivation that he's playing is, what are you doing? What's happening? As in, oh, are you going to start performing oral sex on me now? Cash. And then Kurt Russell calms him down and says, don't flatter yourself. And then he looks down at his uh, genitals and says, Pee-wee. And then Sylvester Stallone responds, well, I don't know you that well. And then he goes, oh, by the way, don't worry. Someday the other one will drop, referring to his testicles. Mm-hmm. In direct uh, reaction to that, Kurt Russell says, well, boy, tripod. Keep talking. And then he says, okay, Minnie Mouse. Which is funny because he calls him Pee-wee and then he calls him Tripod. So we're, what are we really supposed to believe about the size? It's confusing how big it is. It's intentionally vague, I think. There's another trope here, which is the use of drag. And I guess now this is really why we did this podcast. Who is hotter, Jeff Bridges or Kurt Russell in drag? Bridges. Guys. Bridges. Yeah, beautiful. it's Bridges. Yeah. I think he has a better wig, to be fair. It's true. Kurt, Kurt Russell doesn't have like the right things going for him. But yeah. I agree. It was Jeff. Yeah. All I can say is Patrick Swayze made the right choice doing Roadhouse and not this movie because... He doesn't deserve to be in this garb. But don't worry, because he does drag with Wesley Snipes later. Exactly. Yeah, we do get him in drag and Roadhouse rules. Roadhouse rules. Anything else to say about this? AO3? Let's talk AO3. There's nine total. Yep. All slash. I mean, it only makes sense. That is the end of the 80s, people. We made it through, but we would be remiss if we did not bookend our uh, 70s movie with a 90s movie that I think is going to bring some of the themes we've discussed back together so that film is 1995's die hard three take it away todd so there was discussion of like other ones that we could have done so if there's bad boys or rush hour or other ones and any of those would have been a good example but i think that they're the through line of people being at odds because of class or race or other issues and also i think it's just an interesting we're talking about the you know evolution of this genre 
and how Die Hard kind of had to reinvent itself by becoming Lethal Weapon in its third iteration. So I chose this one to be the bookend because I thought that it did a lot with race. And here is the logline for the third installation of Die Hard, Die Hard with a Vengeance, 1995. Detective John McClane, played by Bruce Willis, is now divorced alcoholic and jobless after getting fired for his reckless behavior and bad attitude. He's called back into action, however, when a cryptic terrorist, played by Jeremy Irons, takes New York City hostage in a lethal game of Simon Says and refuses to speak with anyone but McLean. Teaming up with a street-savvy, woof, electrician named Zeus, played by Samuel L. Jackson, McLean dashes through the city trying to stay one step ahead of a murderous plot. I am going to say a hot take, which is this is my favorite diehard. That is a hot take. I like the first one fine. I hate the second one. And the other ones are not even noteworthy. This is probably my favorite Die Hard. I'll say I hadn't seen it before. And I really liked it. (laughs) Samuel L. Jackson, of course, is always additive. He's a great time. He's so cool. He's so funny. And I'll let Kelsey give her reaction. But when we wrap around to the race conversation, I think there's interesting stuff that happens in this Uh, one. Oh, yeah. So... uh, I, I love the original Die Hard. Yeah. That's one of my favorite action movies for sure, if not just one of my favorite movies. I did not like this one as much. I found the sort of the riddle structure of it to be kind of hokey, I guess. Okay. Hokey is maybe the word I'm looking for. It didn't work yeah. for me super well. But yeah, no, Samuel Jackson is great. I enjoyed his character. I enjoyed him with Bruce Willis. At, like to, to bookend the race conversation with, how we started in 48 hours and how we proceeded through the middle. I think it's interesting that there's this journey, obviously in 48 hours, race is at the forefront of their relationship, right? It is the main point of conflict for them. It's there through the whole movie. It is ever present. And that is a huge part of the movie. As we go along, you sort of get to a point where we talked about like, there are movies running scared and lethal weapon, black, white partnerships completely unremarked upon. It becomes this background thing to how the movies are. Everyone expects there to be a black-white partnership because that's just how we do our action movies now and they don't have to say anything about it. And then I think it's interesting that we get around to this place where race is a part of the relationship between Samuel L. Jackson and Bruce Willis in this movie. It's like, that's how they meet. This guy is trying to fuck with Bruce Willis. He doesn't know who he is. He is planting bombs around the city and he calls and insists that Bruce Willis show up in this neighborhood in Harlem in his boxers wearing a sandwich board that says I hate n-words just as an effort to get him killed by the people in this neighborhood in Harlem and Samuel L. Jackson is an electrician who has a shop in the neighborhood sees this guy show up here not knowing why he's there and comes over to de-escalate the situation and then ends up dragged along for this ride. I think to me the ickiest part of this was what felt like we're living in a post-Rodney King world or post-LA riots. Obviously, this movie takes place in New York, but as a culture and as a society, it is kind of a hot topic, right? In 95, we're coming right out of that. And so I think that there are some racially charged themes happening, right? And it really felt like a white man's idea of what an angry black man is. Of like, don't trust whitey type of like, you know what I mean? Like, and it's just, you were in a, it's like, it's because I'm black, isn't it? It's like such a white person yeah. writing a black person. Thing that joke say. in particular is very much a it, white person writing a black And hair. it's just like, they were really shoehorning it in. And it just, to me, that was the ickiest part. 
And I do agree, Kelsey, about the it's not a perfect movie. And maybe I just am like jaded because I'm such a lethal weapon head and everyone loves Die Hard so goddamn much that I'm like, I don't love it as much as everyone. So sure. I think maybe that was why I think that I say that this is my favorite. I mean, it can be your favorite. <laughs> yeah. And that's, that's another, instead of the line of like, what's the better movie and what's your favorite movie? I think that probably Die Hard 1 is the best movie. And then this is my favorite. But anyway, to me, what's funny is because it was so clumsily done and also because it was in 95 and not 74 or 82. This to me felt the ickiest in terms of race. This movie feels ickier to you than 48 hours? Because they were taking a stance on it and it was very clear what they were trying to do. But it, it was like they were trying to come up with some ideology of Samuel Jackson character here. And it just wasn't clear because they weren't really thinking about it. They were just trying to write a stereotypical angry black man that was concerned about race and didn't trust white people. And the other one was a clear racist cop, but it was very clear what they were doing. And I just disagree with that decision. Whereas this one, I don't even understand what their decision was. Yeah, I don't know. I think, right, the issue with 48 Hours is Eddie Murphy's turn at the end to be friends with Nick Nolte. That would not happen. Right. Well, also, just we didn't discuss the shit. We can do that very quickly, which is that there's one little reference where it's just like, oh, yeah, give them flowers. And the cop's like, yeah, we all know you like pansies. (laughs) That's the one, like... I don't even remember Groaner. that. Yeah, either. a gay joke. But like, there's not really much physical stuff or once Jeremy Irons is introduced to the audience, we kind of stay on him a lot. It really shifts to where the second half of the movie, half of it is Jeremy Irons and half of it is these guys. And then every once in a while, we're getting a lot of these, I don't even know any of those actors' names. I kind of recognize some of them. But it was like, why are we, like, why are we spending more time? How are we a lot. Yeah, a lot of henchmen, but... I, I would say that this is maybe one of the weakest ships between these two, but it is important in the idea of the, the evolution of right. the buddy cop movie. Yeah, I think the pacing of the movie doesn't allow for a lot of moments of quiet connection between the two characters, and that's kind I of agree. what we're what we're because well, they're, they're scrambling the whole damn time. Yeah, so yeah, it's like they're it literally really is like they're going the to the next thing. I mean, there's oh. a, a clock ticking on a bomb for the length of the film, so. Yeah. Fanfic. Yeah, 602 across the franchise. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. But two are John slash Zeus. <laughs> the vast majority, 532 slash fix between Matt Farrell and John McClane. And it turns out Matt Farrell, Farrell, I don't know, is Justin Long's character from Die Hard 4, 2007. Come on, internet, get your shit together. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's a weird one because he's like a, John McClane is definitely like a father figure for him. So anyway, internet's going to write what internet's going to write. I guess that brings us to just like a general summation of what's going on with the fanfic. Plus you and I both read a little bit. So yeah, people I'm sure have noticed there's not a ton for any of these things. There are a lot of potential reasons. Things that we've discussed at length in other episodes, I think some theories that might potentially explain it are the recency bias issue. All of these are decades old. Well, we talked a lot about race in this one. So as we know, the presence of a non-white character drastically reduces the chances of there being a lot of transformational work about it. A lot of these are comedies. So we did a whole comedies episode about how people aren't writing uh, fic about comedies. Also, they're all movies. And I find generally there's just smaller fanfic. Right. There's less content to work off of. So some patterns that we've seen before, you know, and in cases like the one we just talked about with Die Hard 3, right? Like it's a 
they like found a white guy to ship Sean McClane with, and it is a more recent film. Well, there we go. What fic did you read, Matt? I read a pretty delightful fic from the Midnight Run thriving fandom. As we said, there were five total fics. They're all slash. Most of them, as you find in these little tiny itty bitty fandoms where there's a couple of fic, they're like a few hundred words, not a lot's happening. But there was one like 10,000 word plus fic, like a real a real fanfic for Midnight Run, which was the there was only one bed trope, which is always a good time. It's uh-huh. basically like, you know, they're always sharing hotel rooms because they're working their way across the country. So the premise is their names are Jack and John, and I cannot for the life of me remember which one is which. So we'll go with De Niro and Groden. Groden, as he does through the length of the film, is asking De Niro a lot of personal questions, trying to get to know him. De Niro's putting him off. They get tired. Groden is chained up to the radiator, doesn't want to spend the whole night like that. So De Niro's like, all right. And he handcuffs them to each other. They're going to sleep in the bed together because there's only one mm. bed, obviously. Oh. De Niro's already been experiencing some confusing emotional feelings about the connection that he feels with Groden. And then in the bed, the lights are off. They're still talking to each other. Groden makes a move on De Niro. De Niro is into it. But then he finds out that Groden is trying to sneak the handcuff keys. Classic Groden move. And so he's all pissed. The two of them physically fight while they're still handcuffed to each other. And then uh, they kiss. On the bed? No, they get out of the bed. And then they fight. And then they kiss. And then the run through of it is De Niro's getting annoyed that Groden keeps saying that he's going to die, which is kind of a runner in the movie. Groden is like, I'm obviously going to die if you deliver me. And De Niro's like, Mm -hmm. why do you keep saying you're going to die? You're going to be fine. And so he's trying to convince him that he is going to protect him from the mob boss. And then by the end... Groden does admit to him that he kind of believes that he will protect him, but he says it after De Niro has already fallen asleep. So that's the um, end beat of it. But it was cute. So they they kiss and then what? They nothing else transpires. Well, there there was like the beginnings of a hand job in the bed, but then it didn't go. There well. you go. There so you go. Groden was uh, sneaking the key, but the the emotional catharsis of it is Groden believes that he cares about him i can't believe you were going to tell us about the hand job i believe they call that burying the lead it's that's noteworthy you? <laughs> no it's not the lead but it's noteworthy yeah okay well there you go todd that's what happened in the fic what did you read kelsey so i read all of the thunderbolt and lightfoot fic that was in all English. of them <laughs> all of them so as English. i mentioned there were wait, 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 wait there pause, was... pause i didn't say what the fic was i mean I'll, we'll post oh. it later but my fic was called my word is my bond but so are these handcuffs by sir robin 126 thank you maddie so yeah one of them was in japanese the other two were really short so one is called probably safer together both of these are by a, a writer called fake bodies love that name And the other one is called Fabulous Face. And interestingly enough, both of them are from the perspective of Thunderbolts. And at least in one of them, he explicitly like, but Lightfoot is straight. So it can't ever be. Thunderbolt thinks Lightfoot is straight? Yeah. So one of them is a real micro one about him telling Lightfoot that he has a fabulous face and being like, oh, should I have said it? He's like, no, it's all good that I said it. And then probably safer together, they end up sharing a bed as well because Red has attacked Mm -hmm. Lightfoot. And he's like, I feel safer in the bed with you. But I think that's one where he's like, Lightfoot Lightfoot will never, never be mine. Even though Lightfoot has been hitting on me for the length of the film. Like if you were going to cast any of them, yeah, as any of them is gay and unrequited. For it to be Thunderbolts. 
Well, he, I guess he does seem like the repressed one, right? Like That's true. Yeah. Kel- right. Kelsey, I have to ask you a question. And mm-hmm. I didn't think that I was going to have to ask this question, but Madeline made me believe that I do. Are there any hand jobs that you're not mentioning? Mm. No, there were no okay. hand jobs. Too short. Okay. Too short for hand well, jobs. No kisses even. That's that's wow. two hand jobs down for me. Anything, does he like get do they does he confess his feelings? Does anything come of his like no. unrequited? Well, that's a shame that he doesn't ever get to to confess. Yeah. I mean, they're very short. So yeah, that's buddy action 80s movies. That's a lot of them. We've said a lot about a lot of movies, but is there more to say? <laughs> is there a theme? Well, I guess when I kind of teed it up, sometimes it regresses and it progresses in terms of the physicality of the men, the masculinity of the men, the expressed homophobia, the misogyny, for better or worse, it kind of ebbs and flows. And then I think that every movie is in reaction to itself, right? Very clearly, Die Hard 3 would not exist if Lethal Weapon wasn't such a successful franchise. And then, you know, obviously not all of these were the cartoonish Sylvester Stallone, Arnold Schwarzenegger body types, but you can see that in a lot of it. And I think it's very interesting. And and the ideas of masculinity are always changing. And I think that we're in an interesting time right now because gender politics is very top of mind. And that's why I think it's great that you guys are doing podcasts like this. We're having open discussions like this and we're analyzing things retrospectively in these 80s movies that, and then moving forward. And we're not canceling any movie for not living up to our current standards. We're criticizing them, but we can enjoy them for their merit without condemning them because of their faults. Well said. That, that's that was that was my closing <laughs> argument. Did I win? Is this game? You won. Yeah, you won. you it's uh, the I would do all the points and they don't matter. This is uh, yeah, exactly. Who signs it anyway? You got a million points for that, Todd. I hope that that pleases you. Yeah. So I, I'll say I love a buddy cop movie. I was pleased to do this. It was a good time. Some more than others. I think that the through line of the racial aspects of the movies was an interesting part of the journey and obviously that didn't end in 1995 the evolution of the the black white partnership right like that mm-hmm. is still very much going strong today but yeah i thought this was a fun time even though i had to watch tango and cash yeah i mean my final thoughts i think are a little bit in a different direction thinking about these movies through the lens of our podcast and right we went through the quick listing of why we think there's not as much transformative fic around these things and i think they're probably all true but we've covered some older fandoms as well and so like i think the lingering question in my mind is we know transformative fandom is primarily created by not men yep and so what is the hook for not men that's missing in these movies to engage them in the way that we've seen them engage with starsky and hutch And, you know, we talked a lot about the comedy episode and the, you know, the potential impact of comedic distance, the potential impact of the actors not being quite as attractive. But I can't help but think about, again, you know, the early part of our conversation of like, I don't, I don't know if if women watch these overly muscle bound bodies and go, this is something that I'm connecting to in any way and can Mm -hmm. relate to. I think it is such a male fantasy that that's missing. And so like, I don't know how that ends up functioning in like a film like Lethal Weapon, which in my mind is if there was one that you would take out of all of these and say there could be a lot of shipping activity around them just based on their relationship, based on the way the actors look, that stands out to me as the one that that would maybe have the most fic. Although I guess Midnight Run has some elements of that as well, although it is also a comedy. 
Yeah, because I also think just creatively, artistically, it's one of the best movies. So there's depth to character. Whereas I got like, you know, for example, again, Commando is cotton candy. We're not really shipping that because it's like, he's up connection with anything except for his fucking gun. You know what I mean? So there's that. But then also, you know, some of these you guys had seen, some of you hadn't. Like, obviously, I think probably just the lives that you have led and the movies and TV that you consume just didn't leap out to you. It's like, well, that's something that I would have watched as a child or I would go out of my way to watch now. But besides Tango and Cash and some other ones, but you guys like these movies as women and as fans of movies. Oh, yeah. I'm by no means saying that women don't like these movies as a person who loves an action movie, right? Like, that's not the argument. It's just what drives transformative fandom, which is a little bit different than what I just personally enjoy as Mm -hmm. a film. And I Um, I mean, I really like, you're right that a lot of the predators of the world and the commandos of the world, maybe women don't watch that and think these are my ideal men. But I really strongly think a necessary element for a strong transformational fandom is that it be a TV show, <laughs> like that it be a, a long running series of content that you have a lot of material, a lot of time to attach to the characters and that sort of thing. I think it's just really hard because a movie comes and goes and you watch it and you're like, oh, I have thoughts about that movie. Right. And then you outside of the movies that came out at the height of Tumblr when the, people were just like, we have to ship all the things. Yeah. Exactly. Well, also, yeah. And then, you know, there are some, there's four lethal weapons. There's at least four diehards, right? But your point still stands. Just the way that we are interacting with characters in TV shows is character driven and not as plot driven as a movie is. So you get to know more about them. You get to know about them in scenarios as opposed to like, it's really hard to ship Samuel Jackson and, and Bruce Willis because they're running around and they're going here and they got to do this and they got to do that. Whereas if there was a Bruce Willis and Samuel Jackson sitcom, I would watch every episode. And also it'd be much easier to ship them because we would see their dynamics in different scenarios. Absolutely. All right. Wow. Great thoughts, everyone. Well done. I think we all won. Even though wait you a minute, wait a minute. This is bullshit. I assign a million points to Kelsey and I will take a million points for myself. To sum up uh, our end points, we normally would talk about our queer baiting scale here. I think you and I both agree this sort of predates queer baiting in any like tradition, modern sense. I think coming out of our Starsky and Hutch and Star Trek, if you have any questions about why we're saying that, listen to those episodes. Exactly. Again, here's where I would normally ask the question, does Kelsey want to read fan fiction now? But I won that point in our last episode. So if you, again, haven't listened to Starsky and Hutch, Go listen to it, but things have changed for our pal Kelsey. Yeah, that part of our podcast is kind of over. <laughs> that will that will end now. I'm no longer talking about it. So yeah, that's that is 80s action buddy cop movies, whatever we're calling it. What are we talking about? Two weeks from now. We are finally doing it, Maddie. Oh. We when we thought about this podcast, we initially were going to have a running joke that we forgot about about like, oh, are we gonna do it? Now are we gonna late. do it next week? Now it's too late. We're tackling supernatural. Oh boy! Next time. I mean, if if people are in uh, this fandom world, if you have ever been on Tumblr, you will know that this is like this is the big guns of queer baiting. There's much to be said about it. It's going to be a multi-part episode because we just have so much to say. But we will we will be getting into that next time on the pod. In the meantime, if you have questions, comments, concerns, please send us an email at ltvkpod at gmail.com. Find us on Twitter and Tumblr at ltvkpod. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell a friend. New episodes come out every other Friday at six o'clock Eastern, wherever you get your podcasts.